We're working through this series E4. Um, we've called it that because we want to look at four, um, four views, four experiences of Easter, looking from each of the Gospels at something which is unique within each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, all of them contain the account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, they all uh, contain it with different elements. There's a huge amount of overlap. Uh, and so Mark, we're going to come to Mark this week, and, and Mark is actually the hardest of all of the Gospels to find something that's actually unique. Mark's Gospel was the earliest. It's part of what we mentioned last week, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are a synopsis, an overview of the life of Jesus. It's the earliest that was written, as far as we can see, uh, and it's brief. Mark had a very clear purpose when he wrote his, uh, his uh, letter. He wanted it to be very clear what this was about. He writes in the first verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he writes this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So he's, he's one of those writers which doesn't leave you in suspense until the end when he finally reveals the kind of plot line and everything kind of drops into place. He says it right up front. This is about Jesus. It's good news that Jesus has come. He uses a word that is uh, critical there. He uses the word Messiah, which is looking back at that Old Testament uh, reference, which is looking at the historical promise of this coming one. So he's relating Jesus to the Old Testament, and then he's making a very direct, very clear claim. Uh, a lot of people will say, when, when you read the Gospels, Jesus never said that he was the Son of God. He never claimed divinity. Uh, I think probably most of the people who say that would say it because we're reading it from a 20th, 21st century perspective. We don't actually understand the ways in which Jesus made very, very, very clear claims to divinity. He was really absolutely clear in some of the things that he said, and he said it in ways which was clear to people around, so much so that we read in the accounts of the Gospels that Jesus was killed because he claimed that divinity. So it's a little bit arrogant sometimes, I think, for us in the 20th century to try to identify things which we think Jesus said when those who were of their day made it very clear that they understood what he, was, what he said, which is, I'm the Son of God. So Mark writes this very brief account. He's very clear. He wants to uh, give us reasons and persuade us that this Jesus was the Son of God. He says it's important for you to understand. So I'm writing it down. And I'm saying right up front uh, that this is about the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus was no less than God incarnate, he, he says. Incarnate means uh, uh, become present or to become embodied. Um, that's what he's saying. He's saying God came and he dwelt with us in Jesus. It's a massive claim. It's a claim which is so outrageous, it's either ridiculous and offensive or true. There's no kind of middle ground. Mark doesn't give us any space for that in his account. So he gives us this account and he says, this is good news. 
It's specifically evangelistic, what he's saying. Now, what we've just read, Mark chapter 15, verse 16 through to 32, is the account of Jesus. There are two headings that we have in our in our NIV, which gives us a kind of overview. The first section is the soldiers mocking Jesus. Jesus is taken by the soldiers. We find that they twist uh, a crown of thorns. They place it on his head. Um, that isn't when we think about crowns of thorns. That all, of the, um, all of the common thinking, the clever guys who, who analyze this and look at the cultural contexts, they're pretty clear that when we describe that, we're not talking about a tiny little, a few prickles. We're talking about a, a, a violent, painful, big thorns in, in kind of a big, heavy crown which was forced onto his head. His, his um, clothes were taken from him. They split it up, and then they put a purple robe on him, and they, they beat him while they were kind of persuading him to prophesy who it was that had been beating him. Mark is making it clear that there was that Roman soldier influence, uh, what was going on there. Then he moves to the crucifixion of Jesus, and in this account, he makes it clear that the Jewish community were hand in hand in that issue. So we've got the Roman and the Jewish community who are hand in hand in, the, in working together the death of Jesus. Uh, and all of this is written in these, in these few verses where we're trying to drag out something which is unique to Mark. Not because there's anything that, that's kind of, um, you know, mysterious or special because it's unique. It's just because I want us to find a different way of looking at these four Gospels, something that kind of jumps out. And we can say, oh, that's interesting. Hopefully it's helpful. There's one little account uh, which we can say, although it's mentioned in one of the other Gospels, it's not mentioned here at this point where Jesus is on the cross. And it's verse 29. Verse 29 says this. Uh, well, we read from 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. That's what I want us to look at this afternoon, that little phrase. We've got Jesus nailed to a cross between uh, two rebels, and then on each side, uh, on each side, and then as he's uh, hanging on the cross... People walked past, uh, shaking their heads, hurling, in, in Mark's case, one specific accusation. They made one accusation towards him. And the accusation they made was, you said that you were going to destroy this temple and then you were going to build the temple again in three days. That's what you said. And look at you now. It, it's such a powerful, dramatic accusation, isn't it? You said that you were going to do something which at the time was an unbelievable claim. It was an incredible claim that you were making. And now as we walk past shaking our heads, we're saying, see, I told you. You said that and look at you now. You are in an impossible position the only way that you can possibly do that is we'll make an equally ridiculous claim towards you. The only way that you can fulfill that promise is if you now come down off the cross. 
It's as, much as though they believe that Jesus has made a ridiculous, ironic claim earlier on, and they'll do the same. You know, you, you said this, well, the only way you're going to do it now is going to come down off that cross, and you're going to be able to knock down the temple and rebuild it in three days. You see, you are proved to be who we believed you to be all along, an absolute fraud. That's the claim that is being made. That's what the, this statement is clearly making as they walk past, shaking their heads. You are a fraud. You couldn't do it. That's a massive accusation. In fact, 21st century Christians all around the world, that accusation is absolutely critical. It's critical because if Jesus failed to do any of the words that he said, we, we need, we need to just walk away from him. If he fails on anything, how can we believe him about anything? It's that critical. He said you're going to knock down the temple and build it in three days. How can we believe you, Jesus? And we are not, for many of us, maybe some of us are figuratively, walking past the cross, shaking our heads, saying, you are a fraud. But maybe some of us are also walking along past saying, I've believed you all of this time, and you've said that, and, and how can I believe you now? Because it looks like this is a valid accusation, and you are a failure. How can I trust you, therefore, with my life today? How can I trust you with the things that you say are going to happen? How can I believe you? It's a key question, isn't it? We have to face up to it. But one of the things that I find amazing, particularly around the life of Jesus, towards the end of his life, what we find is an incredible number of amazing statements being made by people who don't even realize that they are saying what they are saying. I would describe it as, as this. It's almost unexpected prophecy. Unexpected prophecy. They're saying things. And it's like they don't even realize what they are saying and what they are doing. But Mark picks up on it, and he sees it, and he records it, so that we can see that the claim that he first made in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, is something which is worth believing. He gets it. Let me read you from Psalm 22 and verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Whoa. Wow, that, that, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Mark's saying, you know, when I saw, when I heard of those events around the death of Jesus, it wasn't for me at that moment a point of crisis. It was like another piece of the jigsaw puzzle has been picked up and it's been put into place. Because when I look back, and I read Psalm chapter 22 and verse 7, and it describes mocking insults and shaking of heads, I kind of think, 
So Psalm 22 isn't actually about all that we've thought it's about for all of these centuries. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about this moment. He's mocked. He's insulted. They're shaking their heads. And and then we say to ourselves, why did Mark record something so benign as the fact that they were shaking their heads? Because he wanted us to see that when I claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one, in Mark chapter 1 verse 1, it was a valid claim. When we read back there in Psalm 22 verse 7 about the Messiah, it's about this one who's nailed to a cross and they insulted him as they walked past shaking their heads. Mark's already referred to this in the trial of Jesus, because there were some who came to the trial of Jesus, we read in Mark chapter 14 and verse 58, we heard him say, I'll destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. We heard him say that. So Mark's saying, what, what he's accused in the, on the cross was also one of the reasons that he ended up on the cross. He was nailed to the cross with the same accusation in the trial as he finally was accused of while he's nailed there. And people are thinking, this is no longer good news about Jesus. This looks like bad news, doesn't it? How does Mark's what, chapter 1, verse 1 fit together? Well, John gives us another little, introdu- uh, little insight which Mark doesn't record. Remember, Mark was very brief in what he wrote. John is the longest of Gospels, and he he writes a lot more about what Jesus said and a lot more about some of the thoughts around that teaching. John is very long. Mark is very brief. He doesn't record the earlier event. He records what's said at the trial, and he records what's said at the cross. But what's said at the trial and what's said at the cross actually happened earlier in the life of Jesus. We read it in in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, when they're questioning his claims, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? It's a ridiculous claim. But the accusation that was made at the trial and the accusation which was made on the cross and this is really important, these are not fictitious, false accusations against Jesus. John tells us it was what he actually said. He really did make this claim to knock down the temple and build it again in three days. Destroy it and I'll build it in three days. That's his claim. That's really quite incredible. Firstly, I think we need to just stop for a moment, pause, take off our shoes and socks, put a pair of first century sandals on, and walk through Palestine for a little bit. Just kind of get into the mindset, get into the feeling of what it would have been like with some of the things that Jesus was saying. Where Jesus was nailed to the cross, visible is the temple. 
this massive dominant structure, huge structure. But it's significant not just as a single building. Um, I, most of you won't get this, and it doesn't even come close. But for some people, walking onto the cop at Liverpool has profound significance. It's not quite as significant now that you sit down, but it was really significant when you used to stand up with 25,000 people. That's kind of a little bit trite, but there is a sense in which there are certain locations which are kind of written into the DNA of people, a people group. This location, this idea is so incredibly significant. If ever they rebuilt Anfield, they could never rebuild Anfield without going towards some sort of recreation of the cop. Now, think of that idea and multi multiply it a thousand times and you are beginning to get to the significance of the temple for us as we walk around Palestine with Jewish sandals on our feet. It was so incredibly essential. It was part of who we are as a people. Not just for a few hundred years since it's been built, but since we began really as a people. It goes all the way back, right the way back through the Old Testament, all the way back to when God brought His people out of Egypt, and there we are as a body of people, comparatively a small number, we're walking through the desert, we're fearing that we're going to be attacked, and God says, I am with you, I am going to be present with you. And Moses goes up, and he receives from God the law, and God says, because you are my people, this, this way of living is going to identify you, it's going to mark you out. It's going to make you that unique body of people that is mine. Not because you live to anything else, but because you live to this. And the way that you're going to uh, identify yourselves as my people is you're going to take that and you're going to build an incredibly ornate box and you're going to put that in and it's going to be covered with gold and there's going to be uh, uh, statues of cherubim on the roof of it, on the lid of it. It's going to be carried with poles. And then you are going to build a mobile temple. You are going to build a mobile temple. And, and this wasn't just uh, Moses, get the people together and build a temple. Mobile one, made out of skins and sticks. Go and do it and just, no way. God was absolutely pernickety about every little tiny detail of how this structure was going to be made. They built it together according to God's design. Every little detail, everything was made, everything was constructed. They built the ark, they, they made the temple, they built right down to the detail of the colors of the curtains uh, and the golden rings for, to hold the tent. Everything, every little detail. And then they put it together. I want you to get your old sandals on now and imagine what it was like way back then, walking through the desert. And we see this, this structure being constructed. 
and then they carry this box, which is the very personification in that box of what it means to be us. That's the place where two things happen. There is mercy because of that box, and there is law because of that box. It's contained there. And when we sacrifice once a year, it happens on that. And then they carry it right into the middle and they place it in the very center. This special construction, this holy place right in the middle made out of this, made in this very kind of light enclosed, uh, light uh, barriered enclosed center of the temple. And there we have this ark. And then the most incredible thing happens. Listen to what happens as that final step is made. We read in... um, we read in uh, Exodus in chapter 40, we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was the most spine-tingling, astounding, supernatural moment where the presence of God linked with that physical structure that had just been built. And then the people knew God is present. It was amazing. And so we live our lives for quite some time wandering around the desert with this um, mobile mobile tabernacle with the ark and all of these things. The ark's the carried around um, Jericho. It's used in all sorts of ways. It identifies, it signifies the presence of God. Uh, And then there's a point at which there is a temple which is no longer built out of temporary uh, skins. It's built permanently. Because now we are in the land which God has given to us. Uh, And again, we have that moment in Chronicles we read this. The trumpeteers and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. The singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. When did they do that? When they'd finished the temple. You know, they've moved on from temporary skins now. They've got musical instruments and they've got structure and they've got society and organization and it's all pointed to the presence of God. And then what happens? Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the the ark's in the middle. And it's amazing. And it tells us that God is present with His people and all of us Breathe a sigh of relief because we know that God is with us. It's safe. Even if I die, the eternal living God present with us now means that I'll live on eternally because God is with us. It was the most significant moment and it is written into who we are. And then there's a crisis because God's people are taken into exile And the temple is destroyed. And during that first moment where the ark is taken into the temple, uh, and the ark gets lost. We'll come back to that in a minute. You're all thinking raiders of the lost ark. Uh, The ark is lost. And the temple is destroyed. 
And so after a period of time, the temple is rebuilt. But the ark isn't in that temple. But the temple is rebuilt. And it is the very temple which Jesus' cross was visible from. And then as Jesus is nailed to the cross, the temple features again in the discussion. You said that you were going to destroy that. Imagine that we, we are, let's locate ourselves. We have, in, in our minds, we have the cross here, and on our, behind us is the temple. And we say, you said that you were going to destroy that and build it again in three days, and we shake our heads and we insult and say, we walk away and we say fraud. Because that, you see, is still standing. And that's going to be standing when you're no longer breathing. So that was a ridiculous claim that you've just made in your life, isn't it? And therefore, we don't believe you. And then Mark takes us within a few verses on a spine-tingling journey. Jesus is nailed to a cross. The accusations are flying. And then the moment where Jesus breathes his last breath, there is an incredible event down there in the temple. Because down there in the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's the, what's the curtain? Remember, don't think about this for a moment. Don't think about this like 21st century Western thought. Think about it with our 1st century Jewish sandals on. What, what curtain is ripped? The curtain in the very center of the temple. The curtain that hid... What? The ark from the visibility of all of the people. The curtain is ripped from top to bottom. It's, it's ripped. And Mark is almost, he takes us on this moment, almost like, I've said, I've used this description on a number of occasions, it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie where we jump about from scene to scene like this. And our heads spinning as we're looking up at the cross, we're looking down at the temple, we're seeing Jesus die, we're seeing the curtain ripped from top to bottom. What's behind the curtain? Nothing. The ark's gone. You see, the ark was behind the curtain in the tabernacle. The ark was behind the curtain in the first temple. And then the ark got lost. <laughs> and and we're, our heads are spinning. I'm looking up at the cross. I'm not thinking, this is incredible. I, I'm, I've, I'm looking at it from a completely different perspective. I'm filled with Jewish thought. I'm filled with my mind that's going to the temple and the significance. Written into it is everything that is important about that center of the temple which contains the most holy place and it's ripped open and it's empty 
So you're going to destroy the temple. And you're going to be rebuilding it. Really? But here you are, you're making me think because you're dying and the ark is missing. The temple's ripped open. I can see into there and I can see there. Here's the question. Where's the ark? Um, well, I know I said that you're going to think Raiders of the Lost Ark, didn't I? Uh, and you might think it kind of fried that Nazi general uh, and then got carried away and it, it's somewhere in an Area 51 type warehouse hidden away from view uh, and nobody can see the ark because probably the Americans have got it hidden away somewhere. Uh, and it's either there maybe. Or, or it's actually maybe, according to other people, it's, it, it was buried on Mount Nebo. But genuinely, people think that might be a possibility. There are a number of, of Ark claims in Ethiopia. Or if you want to take the kind of Knights Templar idea, there are around about a dozen locations, possibly in Europe, where Knights Templar, during the Crusades, have taken the Ark and hidden it away. But Mark doesn't want us to think about that. You see, the ark's gone. As far as he's concerned, in one sense, the presence of God has gone. Apart from that, there is another moment which he's creating a connection for us. He's saying the presence of God, the ark, is not there anymore, it's there. It's there. It's hanging on a cross. What did the ark mean? It meant it was the location of the law and justice of God because that's where the stone tablets from Moses' law were contained, in the ark. It's all about the law. But it's all about mercy and the opportunity of forgiveness because every year the mercy seat was sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. And there contained in that golden box were the two very elements of what it meant for God's presence. It meant justice and righteousness and law. And it meant mercy and compassion and forgiveness and sacrifice contained in that box. And we look in the temple and the curtain's ripped open and it's gone. It's not there anymore because it's hanging on a cross. There now is where the law and righteousness and justice and mercy and sacrifice and forgiveness, that's where they come together. That's the ark. So you know what? I watched a, I watched a program. I always record them. Nat, Nat Geo. Nat Geo uh, the bones of John the Baptist. Fascinating. Do I care whether they found the bones of John the Baptist? I don't care one hoot, but it's really interesting watching them go through the scientific process. Do I care if they suddenly find the Ark of the Covenant? I don't care one single jot. I don't think they will. 
because in the storyline of God, I think he has deliberately made sure that we will never find that again because the ark is now contained in Jesus. He is the completion and the fulfillment of the law. He is all of that. And he is the place where mercy and blood is sprinkled for forgiveness. He's all of that. It satisfies all that that was. But what does it say about the ark and and all of our kind of thinking? It says this. The temple is all about the presence of God. It's all about God being present with us. You know that temple that we look down on? It's gone. There's a wall left. That's it. It was destroyed in AD 70. It's no longer there. There's been a whole series, centuries, of attempting to think about building a third temple. The ark is the covenant in the temple. It's Jesus. That's God's presence. But, you know, God's presence, just like, just like the tabernacle, just like the first temple, just like the second temple, if it's only temporary, it's of limited value. It's of limited value. And so when Jesus said, I'm going to destroy, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. It's because Jesus is assuring us of a permanent, present temple. Him. He is the one who is destroyed. He says, do you know what? This temple, you destroy it in three days. Uh, Destroy it, I'll build it in three days. And they think, "You're you're a nutcase because it's taken 46 years to build this temple and thousands and thousands of man hours and for a start we couldn't destroy it in a day never mind you rebuilding it in three days single-handed you're talking rubbish and of course Jesus is talking rubbish unless it means something else and it's precisely that he says I will equally talk about an impossible I'll talk about raising me if you destroy me. And of course he knew he was going to be destroyed. Destroy me. I'll be raised in three days. I will raise myself. The the combined glory and majesty of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working together in both the work of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus comes out of the grave, it's because he's fulfilled those very words that he was accused of on the cross. He's fulfilled it. And that's the other amazing prophetic word that I think they said without even realizing it. You said, look at what they say in verse 29. Those who passed by hurled insults, shaking their heads and saying, so, who, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days... Come down from the cross. Save yourself. And Jesus says, I will. I will save myself. I will come down off the cross. I will save myself. It's as though without even realizing the shaking heads of accusation become the most astounding words 
of prophetic insight. It is just what Jesus does because His raised presence means that in one sense He is always with us. He's no longer a temporary structure. Even when He was living as a human being in this world, in His physical body, it was a temporary structure in one sense because there was a day where it was destroyed. But His resurrected physical body is an eternal structure. And it's eternally present. And that presence resolves that very issue. The issue of justice. What was contained in the ark? The stone tables of Moses' law. Everything that condemns us. Everything that says that we are unworthy. And then contained within there is also, contained on that is also mercy. And Jesus says, I'm going I'm to return. And I'm going to do what? I'm going to judge both the living and the dead. Against what? Not against your laws, against my laws. And my mercy and my sacrifice is all that is going to be possible to save you. My divine presence is essential. You see, John, John doesn't write like Mark. John, John doesn't sort of give you a very brief picture. He's always thinking and developing and, and building on what, what's going on here. Why did Jesus say that? He introduces it. He doesn't leave us to work it out the way Mark does. Mark just makes those statements so that if we were first century Jews reading this last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we'd be, whoa, we'd get everything. But John fills it out. He says this. We read the first part earlier. He says this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? Then John carries on. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, that's the key. When we understand that the words Jesus spoke back there he absolutely fulfilled. When I realize he never lied once about anything that he said he was going to do, it means now that I believe him. It means now that everything else he says, I believe his words. That's what it happened for the disciples. They recalled. Remember when Jesus said, I'm going to destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Remember when he said that? That's what this resurrection means. I believe him. It was, a, for some of the way John writes, I think for some of the disciples, it was one of those spine-tingling, shaky moments where your knees go a little bit weak and you feel a bit swayed. And you think, whoa, 
Everything has come together in one moment and it all now makes sense. I believe that Jesus. I believe who He is. I believe what He says. And because of that, a few words which are spoken on a cross to a Savior who's dying mean everything to you and me today.